And now, The Good Fight with Yasha Monk. Hi, my name is Francisco Toro. I'm a contributing editor at Persuasion. I recently wrote A Middle Way on Abortion about the Misukokuyo. It's a Buddhist ritual in Japan for mourning children who were never born. And while I went out there trying to write about the poisonous politics of abortion from a different point of view, once I was in front of this priest in this small temple outside Shizuoka and he started performing a kind of demonstration of the ritual, I found myself so bound up in the words, in the chants, in the incense, and in just a sense of loss that the ritual could create that I started thinking about the people in my life who've had pregnancies that haven't come to term and just realizing how sad it is that we don't take a moment to mark these things and that whichever side of the abortion debate you're on, people often don't feel like they're allowed to take a moment to mark their sadness or their loss. It brought me to a realization that abortion is such a personal thing and that it's really so strange that we deal with it only in these hyper-politicized terms. So I hope you'll give it a read, some persuasion. The name is A Middle Way on Abortion. Francisco Toro's piece called A Middle Way for Abortion was published by Persuasion. To learn more about the community we're building at Persuasion and to get similar articles directly into your inbox, head to www.persuasion.community. My guest today is a prolific writer about American politics and history. Michael Lind was one of the founders of New America, is a professor of practice of politics at the LBJ School of Public Affairs at the University of Texas, the state in which he grew up. And he is the author of many interesting books, including most recently, The New Class War and Hell to Pay, How the Suppression of Wages is Destroying America. We talked about what is required to make the American economy work better for workers and ordinary people. We talked about why it is that Lind is often seen today as a conservative, even though a lot of the emphasis in his writing is on economically quite progressive policies, policies that are supposed to redistribute income and wealth down towards the bottom of a social ladder. And we debated about how to think through the nature of populism and what would be required to return to democracies that actually live up to their promise. Mike Lind, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. You know, preparing for this podcast, I've been reading your last two books and thinking about your work more broadly. And I think in a weird kind of way, it feels like the ideological moment is moving towards you, which is to say that you have for a very long time been a kind of heretical centrist of sorts or a radical centrist in the terminology of the 1990s. And in a way, you know, you're kind of an, an economic populist in certain kinds of ways. And you are certainly socially liberal, but with a longstanding instinct towards criticizing a certain kind of sociocultural elite and its squabblers. How are you seeing this political moment? Are you enjoying it? Do you feel like that combination of ideas and interests is coming to have a new lease on life in American politics at the moment? Well, when I first came onto the scene in the 1980s, there were great debates, you know, within the Democrats and the Republicans. And one debate was over neoliberalism. That is, would you deregulate everything, trade and immigration and regulated industries, and then redistribute money, often cash, to the so-called losers. That was sort of the neoliberal model. And it was was a new model. And then there were defenders like me of the older mid-century model, which took the form of the New Deal in the U.S., but took the form of social democracy, Christian democracy, wet Tories in, in Britain, which said, uh, no, we have a mixed economy. 
And we also think that organized labor has a role to play. And so my side lost for 30 years or so from the 90s up until really the 2020s. The ice starts to break with Bernie Sanders and, and Donald Trump in 2016. So there's a French proverb. I don't know it in French. But I heard this some years ago. There are not 36 ways to do a thing. So there are some basic decisions you have to make about how you organize a modern industrial economy and a modern industrial democracy. Do you regulate trade and immigration in the national interest or do you not? Is there a role for organized labor and collective bargaining in setting wages and benefits or is there not? And so you come up with you know, basically, I argue in my new book, Hell to Pay, how the suppression of wages is destroying America, that we've gone from the mid-century model of a high-wage social insurance system in which if you worked 40 hours a week, you not only made enough money that you didn't need means-tested welfare, but you also could uh, pay with payroll taxes for uh, adequate social insurance to uh, the post-1990 system, which I call the low-wage high welfare model. And it's high welfare, not that the welfare is necessarily generous, the U.S. very miserly welfare system, but it's that you have millions and millions of workers in the United States, also in Britain and some other European countries now, who even if they work full time, they can't make enough to live on from their market wages. And so they're dependent on not universal social democratic insurance, or public goods. Like the earned income tax credit and those kinds of things. Yeah, they're means-tested programs for this group called the working poor. And uh, in the middle of the 20th century, for the most part, if you worked, you were not poor. So we tried the neoliberal globalist approach, and it's sibling, the uh, low-wage, high-welfare, high-redistribution system, and it, and it just didn't work. And so I'm glad I've lived long enough, you know, to see uh, people come around to the alternative. It's like the old joke by Churchill before the U.S. entered World War II. The Americans can be counted on to do the right thing as soon as they have exhausted the alternatives. Well, so I'm glad that you get a little bit of enjoyment out of this intellectual moment. I mostly don't. Perhaps we can discuss that at the end of a conversation. But tell me a little bit more about the ideas in this latest book. I mean, part of the subtitle is the suppression of wages. And, you know, it's easy to imagine how if there's suppression of wages that might be destroying America. But, but talk me through the intellectual case for why we should think that wages are being suppressed in the first place. Who is doing the suppressing? How is it that wages are being artificially suppressed today, and what can we do to make wages rise? Well, there are a number of methods of increasing or decreasing the bargaining power of workers with employers with regard to their wages and benefits. The most important is organized labor. If workers can pool their bargaining power, then they get better results. In the United States, there's a union membership premium of like 15% or so in terms of wages uh, as a rule. Even with individual workers, the bargaining power is determined by things like contracts. So, for example, if you have a non-compete clause in your contract and you're working for one company and then you quit and then the non-compete clause says that your former employer can sue you if you go to work in another company in the same field or in a company in the same field within a thousand miles. These are perfectly legal in much of the United States. And the obverse of that is a no poaching agreement, which is a secret blacklist shared by employers who agree not to hire each other's former employees in order to prevent any employees from forcing employers to bid for their services. So there's collective bargaining, there's the contractual aspect of it. And finally, there are labor market conditions. Employers want a buyer's market in labor and a seller's market in jobs, right? They want more people competing for jobs than there are jobs. Logically, workers want a seller's market in labor and a buyer's market in jobs. And if you look at things from immigration policy to uh, welfare policy to unemployment insurance, the shorter the period of unemployment insurance in the welfare state, the sooner you are forced to go back to work on terms that are less than you would if you could hold out for a longer period of time. Even entitlement reform is favored by employers 
because it increases the labor force, right? If you compel people to work until their late 60s or their late 70s. So there are all of these different techniques. And I go into great detail in my book, Hell to Pay, showing how in the United States in particular, my previous book was The New Class War, dealt with the Western world in general particularly North America, Western Europe. And the generalizations, I think, applied on both sides of the Atlantic. Hell to pay is much more focused on the U.S. because in the United States, the collapse of worker bargaining power has occurred to a far greater extent than it has in Europe. So if we want to get wages growing again, this is something that for various reasons we will agree is important. I mean, first of all, because it means that a lot of people who have a very subpar quality of life and standard of living at the moment, just get many more opportunities, much more freedom to decide how they want to lead their lives. And I would say there's also good political reasons to fix that. From the beginning, I've always argued that one of the reasons for the instability in our democratic systems and the polarization and the rise of some politicians who I don't particularly like has to do with the sort of sectistic nation of living standards. If we can get ways of moving again, I think it would lead us to a much more productive politics. But how can we do that? Can we really reinvent a moment in the United States where trade unions were as important as they were when most people were in manufacturing employment, where were going to a factory at the same time, to the same shift, where the idea of that kind of solidarity with your co-workers and the possible impact of a strike and the ability to coordinate, which is very different from what it is like today if you're in a gig economy, if you're an Uber driver, if you're a delivery driver, if you're working in a restaurant. So can we actually recreate that world of powerful trade unions and other kinds of bargaining mechanisms? And will some of the things that are clearly own goals make a big difference? So I agree with you, of course, that many of us non-competes are mistaken. And there is now some legislative movement towards making it much harder to enforce non-competes. And I think that is an excellent thing. But it's not clear how big a difference that is going to make, right? I think it's clearly negative for the economy. It's not clear to me how big an effect size on wages of those kinds of regulation really are. So is there a realistic path to making sure that the wages of the average American or of the working poor really grow more significantly in the coming years than we did in the last years? Well, I think there is, but we have to understand the history of the mid-20th century. So particularly in the United States, the U.S. was a developmental state, to use the political science term, from the Civil War up until the Great Depression. That is, the government worked closely to sponsor the development of American industry and everything from infrastructure like railroads, tariffs, the U.S. had this kind of East Asian pro-industry economy. It excluded labor. It was a kind of industrial policy that included business and government. It excluded labor and farmers. So then the New Deal can be seen as a way to bring in labor and also farmers, who are much more important in the U.S. and Western Europe in the 40s and 50s than they are now, into this already existing system. So the first difference, I argue, between that period and today is that the U.S. and to some degree Western Europe needs to reindustrialize. It needs to offshore some supply chains that are strategic and have been lost. And that can only come about through government industrial policy. And the means will include all kinds of things, you know, tariffs, local content regulations, subsidies like those in the CHIPS Act that was recently passed by Congress. And it can be done poorly or well, but it needs to be done. I argue that we need to simultaneously rebuild worker bargaining power as part of rebuilding this productive economy. It's not something where you have a bunch of flourishing businesses and then labor shows up and says, okay, we want a piece of the action. I think you have to rebuild them both simultaneously. But what that means is there is no one-size-fits-all policy. Industrial policy is sectoral policy. If you want to reshore manufacturing chemical precursors to drugs, that takes one set of policies and there's a one set of a different workforce appropriate to it, then there is if you want to improve the productivity of fast food restaurants and the pay of their workers. So you have a sectoral industrial policy combined with a sectoral labor policy, and they can take different forms. In some industries, like mass manufacturing and infrastructure, 
the kind of national sectoral bargaining that still exists in Europe, where multiple employers in a field negotiate with all of the representatives of workers in a field, that would be appropriate in the United States. And we actually have this in the obscure Railway Labor Act, which covers train and transit and airline operators who are not part of the main National Labor Relations Act of the 1930s. In other cases, like a lot of service sector professions, where it's very difficult to unionize the workers, you can have wage boards. This was a British invention a century ago, and it was spread to all the English-speaking countries, including the U.S., in some cities and states in Western Europe. The government just appoints representatives of labor, representatives of that industry, maybe consumer representatives, and you just set industry-specific minimum wages and benefits. So there's no need to belong to union at all, but you're still represented. So there's no single magic bullet. But I think that if we're going to get beyond both anti-labor neoliberalism and neoliberal globalism, which is really unilateral liberalism, because if your trading partner is cheating or a state capitalist like China, it's not really free trade, it's one-way free trade. I think we need to combine these two simultaneously. And just to give you an example of this, there's a lot in the way that the Biden administration has applied the Inflation Reduction Act subsidies for manufacturing, mostly green manufacturing, that I disagree with. So, for example, they want all employers to provide child care. I don't think that's a job of the employers. However, I think it's perfectly legitimate to say that if you're getting subsidy from the government or a tax break, or if you're a contractor, then you have to enter into some sort of collective bargaining scheme. It doesn't have to be the AFL-CIO. It doesn't have to be the National Labor Relations Act. I don't think we can revive most of the private sector labor architecture now that only 6% of workers in the private sector are unionized. So I think, you know, unlike in the period from the Civil War to the New Deal, you don't build the economy first and then stick organized labor into it. You rebuild the economy and you rebuild some kind of collective bargaining simultaneously. I have a sort of publishing question to you, which I rarely do. You know, 10 years ago, if somebody had published a book titled Hell to Pay, How the Suppression of Wages is Destroying America, it would seem very obvious to me that this would be published by a left-wing press or perhaps a mainstream press. But it sounds in its title like it fits very easily on the left wing of a political spectrum. As it happens, your book is published by Portfolio, which is one of the premier conservative imprints in the United States. Well, I push back at that. Sentinel, which is also part of Penguin, is an explicitly conservative press. Portfolio does a mix of books. It tries to be more public affairs oriented. But it's certainly the case. I have been coded as a conservative. I would have been coded as a progressive in you know 2010. Or in uh, 1990, I would have been on the left. I was a Cold War liberal, but, you know, Cold War liberals were pro-labor and pro-union and so on. So what has happened is, you know, I'm simply setting forth a position that I think is coherent. And as I said, there are only a few coherent positions, and this is one. And there are others that are coherent that are quite different. What happens is that by mechanisms that are mysterious to me, maybe you know these people, like who decides at any given moment what is left and what is right? All the way up until 2000, immigration restriction was pushed by uh, the AFL-CIO and by the labor movement because of worries about competition and wage suppression. The people who were making the arguments about open borders and humanitarianism and so on were Cato Institute libertarians and the representatives of American agribusiness. Then after 2000, suddenly, what had been the right-wing libertarian position on immigration was now the progressive immigration position. And if you criticized it, you were a bigot and a nativist and a fascist. You know, the same is true on trade. The trade skeptics are now mostly in the Republican Party. They were mostly in the Democratic Party. You had people like Dick Gephardt, were economic nationalists, you know, running for president or considered as presidential contenders. So we're in 
And this is where I disagree with a lot of people, and maybe I disagree with you, the liberals so-called, who think that this assault on liberalism is fairly soon. I think that the U.S. and maybe some Western European democracies have effectively been post-democratic since the 1970s. And, And this is the theme of my book, The New Class War, which is that the three organizations that gave real substantive power to working class people were these mass membership organizations. They were the political parties, which were federations of local clubs. There were the trade unions, and there were churches and religious institutions, which were much more important then. And this is not an original point with me. That is Scotch Paul, you know, has made this point for years. What happens by 2000 is that these organizations simply disintegrate, and the only connection that most ordinary citizens have with government is maybe voting in a primary or general election in the United States in a single-party district where the party's going to win no matter, right? I mean, it's, it's just, it's going to be all Democrats or all Republicans. And then they have no say in terms of lobbying in between elections. So I think we moved to what I call neoliberal technocracy in the 90s and, and 2000s. And various rebellions, they have different local motives sometimes, but you know, Bernie Sanders on the left, Trump's voters, not Trump himself, he's just a charlatan and a demagogue. But the voters, it, it was just a backlash against this closure within this kind of technocratic system. In Italy, of course, you see this illustrated better than anywhere else in the Western world, right? Because you had Berlusconi long before you had Trump. And at the same time, you literally have technocratic governments, right? They're run by technocratic mandarins. And you get this kind of back and forth between populist demagogy and technocracy, right? You know, the interesting thing, you're asking me somewhat in jest whether I know who decides these things. I don't know who decides these things, but I think I know the mechanism which decides it, which is that the economic dimension used to determine who's on the left and who's on the right. You would have been able, you know, to some degree of accuracy, some relatively large degree of accuracy, to guess who somebody's voting for by asking them something like, would you rather have a bigger welfare state and more taxes, or would you rather have a smaller welfare state and less taxes? Today, it seems to me that culture is at the forefront of our politics and deciding what our politics is about. And so therefore, somebody who on economic issues is quite left wing, but on certain cultural issues is coded as being right wing, for example, because you're more skeptical of immigration than other people, then becomes immediately classed as right wing, right? Even if that to you is just an outflow of an economic agenda where you're saying in order to raise wages in this kind of way, we have to have some limits on immigration. And really what drives you is the economic dimension, the sort of epiphenomenal policy position that pushes you to embrace becomes the foundation of your perceived political orientation in a system that says what's primary is culture. And so Lind has said some skeptical things about our current immigration policy. So he must be a conservative. So I think that would be my attempt to explain that. But I then want to ask you a question, which is for people who are, if you don't mind the word, something like economic populists like you, who say we should uh, do what we can to increase wages. And if that means having much more industrial policy, breaking with all kinds of neoliberal dogmas in all kinds of ways, then that's what we should do. What's the political home going to be at a moment where traditionally that would have been the Democratic Party? Today, the Democratic Party is very torn and very split between a far left that is more driven by culture, but is very left wing on economics as well, and a much more corporate part of the Democratic Party, which has in many ways become vastly more popular among the professional class and on Wall Street and in the tech world and in the consultancies than there would have been 15 or 20 years ago. And on the other hand, there's a Republican Party, which increasingly has working class voters, which has some leading figures and some leading senators who are increasingly talking in ways that seem to be influenced by the work of people like you that are really thinking about industrial policy, about pro-worker policies in those kinds of ways. But that still also have some deep roots in corporate America and in, you know, country clubs and in the kind of upper middle class that sociologically remains a significant part of Republican voters. And when push comes to shove, they seem to keep voting 
for policies that are much more traditional on the economy. So where do you see the set of arguments you're making about the economy finding a political home in the United States? Or do you think they will continue to be as homeless as they have been in the last decades? Well, that's an excellent question. I do not see these mass membership organizations being reconstituted spontaneously anytime soon. So the parties will continue to be dominated by their very upscale college-educated primary electorates in the primary election who are driven much more by post-material culture war issues than they are by material concerns, certainly those not the material concerns of working-class majorities. So then the question becomes, assuming we have this elitist or indeed oligarchic political system where basically the activists and the members of the party, the politicians, you know, send their kids to Sidwell friends and they have much more in common with each other and share the same broker and, and so on than they do with their own constituents. Well, how do you get reform in a, in a kind of system like that? And we have examples both from American history and, and from abroad. You can change the elite consensus, the consensus about both parties, bipartisan consensus, without this being the result of elections. Nobody voted, Yasha, in the 1970s and the 1980s to allow the minimum wage to be eroded by inflation, right? The public was opposed to NAFTA. The public has been opposed to most of uh, the trade treaty. They got pushed through anyway. The public has been consistently interventionist militarily, whatever you think of it, you know, for my entire lifetime. They want less foreign aid, less military intervention abroad, fewer alliances. So the most successful policy elites in the neoliberal period from the 90s to the present were libertarians in economics, whose ideas in watered-down form were adopted by Clinton Democrats and Reagan Republicans. And neoconservatives, I used to be one in my youth. You know, while these are the second wave neoconservatives, they're quite different from the older Cold War liberals who wanted this very expansive policy of U.S. global hegemony. Not for conspiratorial reasons. I mean, that was the strategy that they supported. And, you know, arguably they were mistaken. But whether you agree with them or not, there was no voter pressure or grassroots pressure bringing about either the U.S. hegemony strategy, or the deregulatory neoliberalism. So to me, if we move away from those two schools of thought, it will probably be as a result of changing the minds of members of the elite. And it has to be members of the elite of both parties. It has to be a bipartisan consensus. Uh, the U.S. has so many veto points and I kind of make fun of this sometimes. Intellectuals in particular, they think, well, we will form a sect, and then our sect will become a faction, and then our faction will take over one of the two parties, and then one of the two parties will have a trifecta of the House and the Senate and the President, and maybe a Supreme Court majority, and then we will rule, right? Then we will impose our agenda. It's never happened that way. There was a bipartisan consensus in favor of protectionism and import substitution from the Civil War all the way up to the Great Depression. There was then a shift in favor of U.S. global involvement in peacetime and in terms of liberalizing trade during the Cold War. Then there was a bipartisan consensus supported by elites in both parties of a single global market under a kind of Pax Americana, right, resting on U.S. military power after the 1990s. And so that's why when people say, well, you know, who in the Republicans is going to do this, who in the Democrats is going to do this, my answer, and I've been consistent in this, and, and this is my answer in the new class war as well, powerful elites seldom respond to pressure from below. The peasants are disorganized and they can rebel, but they can be cut off easily. And, you know, it's, it's external pressure that makes them rethink their views. The only reason business went along with the legitimacy of organized labor was the war against Hitler and the Axis and then the early Cold War, where there was this feeling we have to have labor incorporated into this as much as we dislike them for social peace and in order to prevent stoppages in defense production, right? So I think what is driving a lot of the rethinking, I think, you know, the Sanders and Trump rebellions fizzled out pretty much in both parties at this point. 
if you look at DeSantis, you know, I mean, he could be George W. Bush. It's culture war plus we're spending too much money, right? So the working class element of the Republican Party is higher, but they don't have any influential spokesmen. There are a few J.D. Vance and Marco Rubio and Josh Hawley and a few others, but they're a minority. The Sanders movement is more or less extinct within the Democratic Party, which looks like the Democratic Party of 2012. You know, it's environmentalists and uh, identity politics. And we see this in industrial policy. Biden could have repudiated Trump's industrial policy. Instead, he's built a particularly anti-China policy. He has built on it and extended it and made it ever more sophisticated. He's carrying it out in a very sophisticated way and probably indefinite. I think this is the beginning of a second Cold War that will go on for decades, particularly since the Russian invasion of Ukraine is a catalyzing event like the Cold War, which really sealed Cold War alliances for a generation or so. So if you're going to have this quasi-mobilization of the domestic economy for national security purposes, and that's what we're seeing, then the question is, do we leave working people out or do we include them somehow? And that may be a question that divides the two parties, but it may also be that as in the Cold War, the Republicans and Democrats will both say, yeah, well, we need to include them. That's very interesting. I mean, it would require this point of view to win within each of the big political parties. And as you're saying, at the moment, that still feels like quite a distant possibility, except in certain areas like the change trade policies with China. But perhaps that is the beginning of it. It does seem to take us back to your penultimate book, The New Class War, whose subtitle is Saving Democracy from Managerial Elite. So perhaps you can just explain to listeners what the new class war is in your mind. How is it that the managerial elite is threatening democracy and why does that constitute a new class war? Because it seems to me, just to make the link explicit, that for the changes you're hoping for to happen, that managerial elite needs to either become a lot less powerful or have a very radical change in its understanding of its self-interests. Well, I follow uh, James Burnham's analysis in the managerial revolution uh, that he published during World War II. And he built on Adolf Burley and uh, Gardner Means in their book on managerial capitalism succeeding proprietary capitalism or bourgeois capitalism by the 1920s and 30s. So essentially, with Burnham and with people who thought along similar lines independently in some cases, like Milovan Gilas, like John Kenneth Galbraith, who called it the technostructure, what you get in modern societies is Bruno Ritzi called it the bureaucratization of the world. So all of these organizations, government, nonprofit, and for-profit, that had been kind of small-scale and run by, you know, the founding capitalist or you had small government agencies and small local charities. They became immensely bureaucratized and largely because of the wealth of the Industrial Revolution. So the small charity becomes the Ford and Rockefeller Foundation, right? The owner-operated company becomes this global world-straddling behemoth. And in the United States at present, Yasha, a majority of Americans in the private sector works for a company with more than 500 people. So this is really an age of giantism. So the idea of the managerial elite is the people who end up running these public and private and uh, for-profit bureaucracies. Uh, and you and I are part of this class, the college-educated overclass, as I call it. They tend to be very similar. You have to have a college diploma, often an advanced degree to advance. Power in the managerial society, and this is where the Marxists get angry with me, it's not money per se. It is control of a large bureaucracy. It can be a large private bureaucracy, but if you're a shareholder, if you're the richest shareholder in an automobile company, you cannot walk in there and just start firing the secretaries. It's a structure. It's a massive bureaucracy. You have to work through the institution. And there tends to be a merger of these elites. Socially, they go to the same schools. You know, their kids attend the same private schools. They vacation at the same watering holes. They watch the same cable TV shows. 
uh, talk about them on Twitter, right? You know, and it's you get a kind of epistemic closure, and there's a kind of, even if they're not aware of it, just pursuing their individual interests, if all members of a powerful elite pursue their individual interests simultaneously, it looks like it's coordinated. It looks like a coordinated class interest. So there have been two answers to what do you do when you have this kind of bureaucratized managerial society? Well, there have been three answers. One is you just go back to agrarianism or small business or something like that. You have antitrust. You break it up and we go back to a lot of shopkeepers. Well, that would be a disaster because managerial capitalism is an improvement over bourgeois capitalism. And managerial society is more efficient and better for ordinary people than its predecessor was. So we're not going to get rid of managerial society. The answer of Burnham, who later became very right-wing and a co-founder of William F. Buckley Jr.'s National Review, and John Kenneth Galbraith, who was Mr. Liberal, was countervailing power, a term used by John Kenneth Galbraith, the economist. So you don't break up the managerial elite. But you have outside organizations that are accountable to them. Now, obviously, to the working class, like uh, trade unions in particular, in the case of the private sector. Now, the system does assume, as we've said, that you have an enlightened segment of the managerial elite, which for class selfishness, if no other reason, so they don't get overthrown, they will make some concessions to the population. So let me think through why it feels that this managerial elite, as you would call it, I've been starting to think about a sort of more broad term of the influential million, the sort of million Americans and perhaps 10 million Americans who are in the greatest position of authority and influence in basic sectors of American life and the economy and who have become very much a class upon themselves, sustain a culture upon themselves. You know, why is it that this group seems to be both more deeply influential on society today and perhaps more out of touch with ordinary people today, either than in the past or than, in my feeling, is the case in some other countries that I know well? It feels to me that in Germany, there's certainly some kind of equivalent of this, but it feels a little more organic, a little less separated from the rest of society, a little less far apart ideologically. And therefore, some of this sort of clash you're talking about isn't happening to the same extent. Now, A, you may disagree with this diagnosis. So the first part of the question is, do you agree with that basic diagnosis? There's something about the particular culture of this particular managerial lead in your language that seems worse than at other times, or at least that puts it further apart. So managerial elites can come in different forms. I mean, there's one in consisting of Chinese princelings in communist China today. You know, the nomenclatura in the Soviet Union was a kind of managerial elite. So they don't have to be democratic. They don't have to be liberal. They can be reactionary. They can be progressive. The peculiar American and maybe Anglo-American managerial elite, though I think it's situated in the U.S., lacks two characteristics of a good ruling class, which is what they are. They lack noblesse oblige, and they're not snobs. So this sounds kind of counterintuitive, but, but let me explain. So noblesse oblige, they don't acknowledge that they got to where they are, that you know we got to where we are in my case, because we came from college-educated families and we grew up in good neighborhoods and all of that. But the idea of meritocracy is so strong that if you're born into the upper middle class and then you move slightly higher in the upper middle class in the U.S., then you think, oh, look what I did on the basis of my own efforts, right? Why can't everybody be like me? That's the lack of noblesse oblige, because if you're born to old money, then you know that you inherited your position, right? And you may be a cynical Kalistov, but you may also, you know, think you have to devote yourself somewhat to the, the public interest uh, sincerely. The lack of snobbery comes from the fact that, I mean, we had a managerial elite during the Cold War, and they had their own culture, and it was different from the working class culture. You know, they went golfing, the working class went bowling, you know, the working class watched Milton Berle on black and white TV and, you know, the elite went to the opera and the Metropolitan Museum of Art. 
But the elite was not evangelical, right? They did not think, oh, it's terrible, you know, that they're watching Milton Berle on television. You know, they should be listening to the Boston Philharmonic, and we're going to make them, like, appreciate classical music. And we're going to make them eat diets like the ones we have at the Four Seasons. They just neither class thought this way. And the reason the culture war, I think, is central is the missionary impulse of the American managerial uh, overclass. Instead of saying, okay, we're going to share some power with you and share some money with you. We're going to keep most of the money and the power, but okay, we're going to share some. And what you do with it, we don't care. You can wear tacky clothes. You can eat steaks, right? You can, you know, watch terrible movies. We're not going to police your movies, police your comedy clubs. And this is really new. In my lifetime, I'm 61 years old. And this is really a phenomenon of the post-Cold War period, having this puritanical elite, which is simultaneously privileged, but it doesn't have a sense of noblesse oblige, or to the extent that it does, it takes the form of trying to micromanage the lifestyles of people underneath them. That's fascinating. And so, you know, what created that? Why is it that this particular iteration of a managerial elite has become missionary in the ways you're talking about? And what, therefore, is the solution to it? I mean, is it to overthrow the managerial elite? But as you're implying, a new one will inevitably rise up? Is it to convince it to become less missionary than it was, but that's something that feels in some ways even less realistic at the moment in the American context? Is it to sort of win countervailing powers where there's this ongoing struggle between a missionary managerial elite and these loci of resistance? I nearly sound Foucaultian here. You know, what's the way out? The way out in any strategy is you get a section of the managerial elite that says we're just going to quit acting like this, right? And, you know, we're going to focus on things that we, the elites, can do or should do competently, foreign policy, you know, the dollar trade, productivity growth, and so on. But we're not going to tell people how to live in terms of their sex lives or their diets or their exercise routines. Or We're not going to be busybodies. So they will need allies in tribunes of the working class. And tribunes are not demagogues. Demagogues arise where you don't have institutionalized Roman-type tribunes. The tribunes, for example, and unionized corporations in the 1950s, they were employees who spoke for the other employees to the management, right? You had shop stores, for example. We don't have shop stewards in the giant corporations that most Americans work for. We have HR. We have human relations. And HR works for the boss, works for the managers. So I don't know about you, but at various times, different organizations, I've been subjected to diversity trainings, security trainings, you know, all kinds of, of things like that for office workers. And the answer to everything, the cheat sheet, the answer is always take it to HR immediately. Okay. So I'm not going to do it, but somebody needs to do a book on how HR is poisoning society. Because one of the things that these underemployed HR people do is they think of new trainings. And diversity training is only one. I mean, it could be computer security trainings, but it's all kinds of things. But this is how what's been called woke ideology is being spread into the workplace. It's through HR. It's through these uh, diversity uh, and equity trainings. And I sat through some of the early diversity trainings. But, you know, they were very brief. You know, if you witness a racial discrimination, you know, tell the boss. You know, don't discriminate against people. It was classic colorblind universalistic liberalism. Now it's essentially the content of radical feminist and radical identity politics campus left of the 1970s and 80s is being disseminated through HR to all of these mostly working class employees. And then they're confronted by this. And it's just bizarre. You know, they want to work for Acme Corporation. And they're hearing about Ibram Kendi and, you know, 
you know, like theories of radical androgyny and stuff at the workplace. And I do think, correct me if I'm wrong, Yasha, but this is very much an Anglo-American thing. Really, the Anglosphere is the heart of it, isn't it? Well, it's certainly much stronger in the Anglosphere, and it's starting to spread to other countries, but the role of HR is more central in American corporations. Of course, some American multinational corporations then have a significant number of employees in other countries, and they then end up being subjected to the same thing, and by an process of osmosis, other companies start to emulate that. I'm really struck by the fact that HR says in the training, if there's any kind of problem, take it to HR, because of course, that's what you would expect from any form of bureaucratic politics, that any unit within an organization is trying to grow its role within the organization. So of course, the answer is that. You ask me whether I have an experience with that. I have a few experiences with that. But the one that really sticks in my mind is when I was a second-year graduate student doing my PhD at Harvard and teaching for the first time. And we had to go to a training session at you know, the box center, which is, I mean, I suppose kind of the equivalent of HR within the university framework or something like that. And I remember them giving us these hypotheticals. And I think in some ways it was still an older world of trainings. I've done some research in the history of diversity trainings and what you're saying is exactly right, but they used to be, you know, you need to get along. And if you're rude to somebody, that's bad. And if you see somebody rude to somebody, you know, report it. But it was much more emphasizing commonality and much more emphasizing we need to get on rather than being the vehicles, at least in many cases, for these forms of identity politics that they have become now, with Kenny, but even more so D'Angelo, you know, at the heart of the kinds of ideas that then get taught, that, that evolution has happened very strongly in the last 10 years. So what I'm talking about here, that this would have been the year of 2008, or 2009, perhaps, I don't really remember anything about the training being particularly off. I thought, you know, some of it was helpful. But I remember them giving this hypothetical, where it was, you know, what happens if you get an email from a student who says that something you said was racially insensitive. And having still been quite new to the United States and perhaps naive, I thought, well, what would I do? I would say, well, I'm so sorry that, you know, there must have been a misunderstanding. I obviously didn't mean to be racially insensitive. Why don't you come into my office hours and we'll talk it out? And of course, the right answer, which, you know, the person teaching us pushed for strongly and which all of my classmates then in conversation afterwards pushed for strongly. It's like, no, 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 no. You never want to be in one room under four eyes with this person ever again, because you don't know what they then say you might say under four eyes, whatever, you know, you immediately contact the dean and make sure that in the next conversation, there's representatives of the university present and so on and so forth, right? And certainly today, I would think that is the answer you have to go for. But it feels like something is lost there because certainly at the time, which was a little less ideological, probably 90% of the cases, you would have been able to resolve this through a one-on-one conversation, right? Most students are decent human beings who are well-intentioned and they can misunderstand things. Or sometimes we as teachers can express ourselves poorly. And most of the time, you would have been able to sit down with a student and say, look, you know, what's your concern? And, oh, that's not what I meant. What I meant is this. And, you know, somehow figure it out. But of course, the risk of that is such that you don't want to do it. So that's sort of the closest I come to the VHI example. Let me ask you another question. You alluded to the fact that we have a kind of difference about populism. And I want to locate what that difference is and debate it for a moment. It doesn't seem to me to be a difference in our assessment of at least some of the populists. As you were saying earlier, Trump is, I think you said, a demagogue in Charlottetown or something along those lines. And I certainly agree with that assessment. Part of the disagreement, perhaps, is that you think that there's less to save in our political system that I do, that because it had effectively become a neoliberal technocracy, in your words, for a long time, perhaps we need to be less concerned about some of the developments now. I guess I want to hear from you, you know, how worried are you about populism, not as an economic proposition, not as in the kinds of policies that you're pushing for in your last book, for example, but as a phenomenon of politicians who are undermining some of the key institutional norms and rules, as I would see them, to sustain free and fair elections. Some of the things that are going on, not only with some of the stuff that Trump was doing, but what Erdogan has done in Turkey, what Modi seems to be doing in India, what Kaczynski seems to be doing in Poland, what Orban is doing in Hungary. To what extent do you think we should be worried about that? And is that where you locate our disagreement about populism? Well, let me say that I don't consider myself a populist. I see populism and technocracy as equal and opposed evils. What I mean by populism is a charismatic Bonapartist or Caesarist figure 
claiming to represent the undifferentiated masses against a corrupt establishment, and that can be the left, the right, or the center in some cases. I consider myself a pluralist, and and I've written in Compact Magazine and elsewhere about this idea of uh, pluralism, about intermediate institutions, the absence of which lead to this doom loop between technocracy and populism. So, of course, you know, I'm concerned about populism. I'm a fifth-generation Texan, a Southerner. The South, between the Reconstruction and the Civil Rights Revolution, had the sort of system, I think, that we're moving into now, where you have this very nepotistic, closed-off elite, and periodically there would be rebellions backed by alienated voters when they could vote. Half of the whites, as well as all of the blacks in the South, were disfranchised before the 1960s. It wasn't just a racial disfranchisement. It was class disfranchisement. But they would rally behind these figures, almost all of whom turned out to be obnoxious blowhards like Donald Trump. You know, most of them, they either sold out to the existing establishment or they created their own corrupt personal patronage schemes like Huey Wong in Louisiana and the Long family, they created their own dynasties. But almost always they betrayed the people looking to them as uh, saviors. And in doing so, yeah, they trashed norms left and right. And that was part of the appeal to their alienated constituents. Having said that, when you have a very cliquish group in Baton Rouge or in Dallas or Houston, like running the state of Texas in this period, they tend to trash norms too, because he's going to stop them, right? So I think people who are really concerned about liberal norms should take some of the revelations about the interactions between Obama and the Clinton campaign in 2016 and the FBI and so on about accusations that turned out to be false, that Trump was a Russian asset. This looks like, you know, breaking norms by the establishment. And let's remember, before Trump descended the elevator in Trump Tower, a lot of people expected that in 2016, the Republican candidate would be the brother of a recent president and the son of a recent president. And he, Jeb Bush, would be running against Hillary Clinton, the wife of a recent president. Right. I mean, you might as well let Hillary marry Bush after he divorces his wife and have the Yorkists and the Lancastrians come together and form a new dynasty. Maybe you're aware of this. I don't know of political scientists who have looked into nepotism in politics, but it seems to be a kind of a universal pattern that successful politicians do tend to create dynasties. And this is troubling for democracy. Now, by accident, George Washington had no children of his own. And his adopted son, Bushrod, was not that bright. So there was no Washington dynasty. Uh, Lincoln had one son who survived to adulthood, Robert, who did not go into politics. There were a few Roosevelts who went into politics and, you know, Robert Kennedy now. So, no, I share the view, but I just think that from my perspective, it's kind of like Scylla and Charybdis. Do we end up, you know, with this uh, technocratic establishment that is quietly censoring libertarian and conservative publications on the internet in the name of disinformation. For example, a lot of this is done behind the scenes by nonprofits funded by the U.S. government. And one of them had Quillette, you know, Quillette, right? It's kind of a libertarian, classical liberal publication as a far-right publication. And once these things are identified by the establishment as far-right, then they can be deplatformed, they can be denied bank funding, the whole works. So to me, that's sinister. Having this raging lunatic like Trump come back into power, claiming like, you know, Sulla, he's got his enemies list and they will be punished. That's bad, too. So, you know, there's just no alternative to having a responsible elite that is allied with people who are rooted in the working class, like labor leaders, and maybe in some cases, religious leaders, but who are not outsider demagogues. I mean, and, you know, their whole approach to politics is negotiation. A very brief last question. You're somebody who has a great sense of American history, and you are trying to push for one kind of resolution to the 
current standoff. But the more I reflect about the changes of, at this point, the last nearly 10 years, the more I wonder whether we kind of have the answer to what this current political epoch is going to look like, which might last for another 20 or 30 years, and perhaps it'll last for 10 years, or perhaps it'll last for 50 years. But it seems to be the clash between a kind of managerial elite in the way that you're talking about as the beating heart of the Democratic Party, and then, you know, the kind of populist authoritarian counter-reaction to it in the form of something like the MAGA movement and Trumpism and so on. And we can hope that in one way or another, this will get resolved, that perhaps the Democratic Party improves the program it runs and the kind of socioeconomic base it has in a way that makes it finally capable of winning broad and convincing majorities against Trumpism. Or perhaps that somebody manages to capture the Republican Party from Trumpism and make it into a more coherent and decent party. But, I mean, isn't the simplest assumption simply that we've sort of stopped being in the moment of transition that we were in between 2016 and 2020, 2021, and we're starting to see the outline of what the basic lines of competition in American politics are going to be for the foreseeable future? Yes, I'm an optimist of the will and a pessimist of the intellect. I think we're now in a kind of classic Latin American politics. I don't mean that in any culturally bigoted way, but just institutionally, Latin America, like the South, had this very inacalitarian society, and you did have the establishment versus the outsider populists. And I do worry, it's not Ron DeSantis, who I think is a fairly conventional Tea Party Republican just waging a culture war, but if we don't rebuild institutions that incorporate alienated working class people, increasingly high school educated African Americans and Hispanics who are leaking over into the populist right. We're getting educational polarization and racial depolarization. Then you get someone who knows what he's doing, like Huey Long, who actually alone among Southern populists was a truly competent figure. You get Juan Perón, as in Argentina, you get Catulio Vargas. And the thing is, these figures may do good things, right? So if you look at Perón and Vargas, they did a lot of the stuff that was done by the New Deal in the U.S., only they did it with death squads and with you know, Ill- illegality to do these pro-worker reforms. So I think at the end of the day, put not your trust in princes. You have to create a system in which there are intermediate organizations that represent ordinary people Between elections, they're not mobilized to get people to vote, and then you forget about them. And the theme of all of my work, both the new class war and hell to pay, is that we have to put negotiation and consensus back at the center of politics and democracy. I used to ask my students when I taught in universities, what's the point of democracy? Some say, oh, chief social justice to express the will of the majority. And my answer that I tried to persuade them of was to avert civil war so that when one side loses, it doesn't feel it's lost everything, that they're still valued members of society. And it's actually to promote consensus. And the consensus may not take the form of 51% majority opinion versus 49%. It may arise from all kinds of complex negotiations. So, You know, I know maybe this sounds kind of naive, but on the other hand, if we were having this conversation in the 50s or 60s, this would have just seemed banal. That, of course, politics is about consensus. And it shows you how much America has changed, that this is kind of an outlandish idea in the 2020s. Mike Lind, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to The Good Fight. Lots of listeners have been spreading the word about the show. If you too have been enjoying the podcast, please be like, rate the show on iTunes, tell your friends all about it, share it on Facebook or Twitter. And finally, please make suggestions for great guests or comments about the show to goodfightpod at gmail.com. That's goodfightpod at gmail.com.
This recording carries a Creative Commons 4.0 international license. Thanks to Silent Partner for their song, Chess Pieces. Thank you.